COP28 is approaching. This year's annual conference of the parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change marks the halfway point between the Paris Agreement, adopted at COP21 in 2015, and the key targets for 2030 that were set by many countries to put them on course to meet the goals of that agreement. The first global stocktake of climate action has concluded that there is a rapidly narrowing window to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. From the 30th of November, COP28 gets underway in Dubai to debate plans for getting on to that Paris-aligned pathway. The Energy Gang will be there as an accredited media organisation to bring you all the key developments from the conference. We'll be evaluating the pledges, the discussions and debates, the agreements and the arguments with analysis from Energy Gang regulars and special guests. We'll be interviewing leaders and experts on climate and energy to get their views on the future that'll be mapped out at COP28. Subscribe to The Energy Gang wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss these very special episodes coming in the first week of December. Hello and welcome to a very special Thanksgiving edition of The Energy Gang. I'm Ed Crooks. Next week is Thanksgiving, which is a special time in America when traditionally families get together and argue with each other. And in honour of that tradition, we're joined on the Energy Gang today by two brothers who've had very successful careers in energy, but have gone in somewhat different directions. Toby Rice is the president and chief executive of EQT, which is the largest producer of natural gas in the US. Hi, Toby. Thanks very much for joining us. Hey, happy to be here, Ed. And Danny Rice is the chief executive of NetPower. Now, NetPower is a low-carbon energy company. It's developing utility-scale power plants that use natural gas but capture more than 97% of the emissions. Hi, Danny. Thanks very much for coming on the show today. Hey, Ed. And we're also joined by Energy Gang regular Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Great to be here, Ed. Thank you all very much for joining us on the Energy Gang today. So to set the scene then, I guess you could say the metaphorical turkey has been roasted, the pumpkin pie is in the oven, and let's get into the debate. I mean, first of all, actually, just set the scene for us a little bit, Toby and Danny. What's Thanksgiving like in the Rice family? Do you talk about energy when you all get together? Well, yeah, it's always part of the conversation because energy is so instrumental, not not only to our lives, but to everyone's lives. And I'd say what we're thankful for this Thanksgiving is is a good time to reflect on what's happening in other parts of, in the world uh, and what happens when you don't have energy security. We're seeing emissions are rising. Energy security is shrinking. And for the first time in the last 20 years, energy poverty is increasing. We are very thankful that we live in America. We are thankful for the American wildcatter that has performed a miracle and figuring out how to extract commercial volumes of oil and gas from a shale rock that has less permeability than the sidewalk that we walk on every day. You know, we've taken American energy from an energy dependent nation to becoming an energy powerhouse. And certainly that's provided a lot of opportunities, not just for our industry, but for, for all the other industries that, that use energy, which is every industry. Uh, so we're very thankful to have this resource. Now the question is, can we get this this blessing that we have and share it with the world? So Danny, what about you? Do you like to talk about energy at Thanksgiving? Yeah, I think uh, when you have four brothers that started uh, what's now the country's largest natural gas producers, it's hard to not want to talk about all things energy. I think the surprising thing is growing up, that's the last thing we talked about. We grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and we didn't know the first thing about oil, natural gas. We knew about fuel oil because that's how my mom's house was getting its heating during the winter was from fuel oil. 
But that was really the extent of our knowledge of energy. And, and I think that's probably representative of most of the country today. Most people really don't understand where energy comes from, how it's produced. Uh, and so I think it's one of those things that I think people are probably not as appreciative or thankful for energy because they haven't been that close to understanding how hard it is to develop the energy security that we now have here in the United States. So, Danny, how did you and Toby, I mean, did you form a venture together originally? Like, who was the first one into energy and how did you wind up in shale? Uh, did you say shale or jail? I think you said shale. I said shale, not jail. <laughs> did someone in the family go to jail? That could be another conversation over Thanksgiving. No, clean records. Well, I think just by virtue of me being a year older than Toby, I got to Texas first in 2003 and I was working for uh, Transocean Offshore Drilling and then Investment Banking. And Toby was right behind me getting his master's in petroleum engineering at Texas A&M. And so it wasn't by design. The third brother was a geologist that studied up at Tufts in Boston for his undergrad and then moved to Houston to get his master's. And so it wasn't this master plan. It, it was just more serendipitous the way it all came together with um, three brothers and then a fourth that were all in different um skills within the energy space to create a successful shale company. And what led you to energy then? As you say, if it wasn't a master plan, but what made you think energy was the field you wanted to work in? We, we spent a lot of time growing up thinking about sports. And when our dreams of being professional athletes did not materialize, we had a conversation with our father. And so they, dad, can you give me some guidance in life? And he said, Tob, what, what about energy? And I said, what are you talking about? But that's what they do in Saudi Arabia. He says, no, we drill wells here in the United States. And it was a 10-minute conversation with him that really opened my eyes, and it was clear to me that this industry presented uh, a ton of competition. It was high risk, and it was potentially you know, very rewarding. So that, that's what got me started. Then you think about during that time, you know, I had a lot of friends that, that went to the Middle East to fight in, some, in the wars, and American energy independence was a big thing, and, and that was our higher purpose. Like The reason why we were doing what we were doing wasn't just to dig holes in the ground to find treasure. Uh, we also felt like we were drilling for energy independence in America, and that was our purpose that, that sort of fueled us during our early years. So now, Danny, you and I have had conversations because you did this pivot in the SPAC world with rice acquisition, and you were 100% focused on clean energy, carbon sequestration, you know, maybe the hydrogen space at some point, though now it looks like Toby's the one who's going into the hydrogen space. So Tell us a little bit about that journey. So I think like our energy transition journey, like interestingly enough, like it didn't start over the last couple of years. It really started when we got into shale development in Appalachia. You know, when, when we started Rice Energy, United States was on the brink of importing natural gas from all over the world. We had these LNG import facilities. And over the course of 2007 to 2020, the United States became the largest supplier of natural gas thanks to shale. But one of the things that we kind of experienced and had a, a pretty heavy hand in domestically was we saw the United States CO2 emissions go down. One of the only countries in the world to see a reduction in absolute CO2 emissions between 2007 and 2020. Now, it wasn't because of renewables. Two thirds of it was actually from coal to gas switching. And so we saw that was really our first experience with, if you want to call it energy transition, energy evolution, whatever it was. We lived firsthand and saw we don't need to have trade-offs. We can achieve both our decarbonization goals while at the same time assuring our access to affordable, reliable energy. We just need to think unconventionally about it. And so 
a lot of the lessons learned from the rice energy days of just because everybody else thinks there's a certain way to do things doesn't necessarily mean that's the best way to do it. And so we certainly lived it firsthand with shale development. And that really has been the biggest driver today of reduction in US CO2 emissions, just coal to gas switching. And that's certainly a torch that Toby continues to carry with EQT on an international stage. But for me, directly getting into energy transition in 2020, 2019, it was really the world was now starting to be a lot more focused and concerned about rising CO2 emissions, rising temperatures. And the playbook for the rest of society was, well, we just need more wind and solar. We need to electrify everything. We need more electric batteries. We need more electric vehicles. And just knowing everything that we do about most of the energy space, we said, it's not going to make the impact and achieve the results that people expect. And so that was really the time where we said, we need to get access to large pools of capital. We need to quickly deploy it around companies that we think will have a more meaningful impact in decarbonizing in a very sustainable way. And so the SPAC angle for us was really a vehicle for us to bring to market the right companies that are going to provide the most impact to achieve both not just our decarbonization goals, but our energy security and affordability needs as well. So I just have to ask one follow-up question, though, because one of the interesting things is a lot of SPACs, you know, crashed and burned. But Danny, your SPACs did not crash and burn. So what do you think was the distinguishing strategy? I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to having a really, really good understanding on the underlying feedstock to whatever the energy process is. And, and everything has an underlying feedstock. Wind has an underlying feedstock. Solar, solar panels have an underlying feedstock whatever the critical minerals are. And everything that we did, the underlying feedstock, it was natural gas. So we had the shale development. And over the course of you know the last 15 years, the United States has become not just the largest producer, but we have the largest resource, just reserves of lowest cost natural gas, which is a feedstock, right, for energy. And so we said, okay, that's, that's like the foundation of what we're going to do is natural gas is a really, really low cost feedstock. The infrastructure that we have here for natural gas, millions of miles of very safe pipelines is the feedstock. It's the transporter of this low-cost feedstock. And so if you look at the two deals that we did through our two various SPACs, the first one was Arkea, which was the, um, the largest renewable natural gas developer in the world, primarily from landfills, where we could take advantage of the vast network of natural gas pipelines and put that natural gas right into power plants in a very decarbonized way. So natural gas was the feedstock to RNG. And we knew this was going to be an industry that oil and gas companies and midstream companies would say, I possess the skill set to also do this. I'm going to get into the RNG game. And so we knew going in that at some point, the oil and gas majors and the midstream companies would want to get into the RNG business. But to be able to get into it, you need to control the feedstock. In Arkea, we quietly over the course of a couple of years acquired the gas rights to some of the largest landfills in the United States. So that was our feedstock, landfill gas. And we ultimately sold that business to BP, you know, for $4.1 billion just several years after starting it. And then with that power, net power is continuing on that same theme of we need to generate the lowest cost, lowest carbon intensity power. And net power's technology for the listeners really just it inherently captures the CO2 through this oxy combustion power generation process. And so we came at it from the same lens of what is the lowest cost feedstock for power generation? 
and unequivocally in the United States, it's natural gas. When you look at it on a 24-hour basis. And so we said, net power is so special because it takes advantage of this really, really low-cost feedstock. And even though it's more expensive than the carbon-emitting alternative, it still is one of the lowest-cost forms of power generation when you look at this on a 24-hour basis. And so all of our businesses that we've gotten into have really taken advantage of the large resource of really, really low-cost, predictable, safe natural gas. So that's really interesting. And I want to get more into talking about net power perhaps in a moment. Before we do, though, Toby, just want to bring you in here then. So it, just in terms of that history, I mean, you, know, you were saying the four brothers, so it's Toby, Danny, we have here, and also your two other brothers, right, Derek and Ryan, not with us today. You were at Rice Energy, which is then bought by EQT, and then there's a kind of basically management struggle, right? And you ended up on top, and now you're running EQT, which, as we've been saying, is the largest natural gas producer in the United States. When you think about the issues that Danny's been talking about, the energy transition, the kind of the pressure globally to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and you're confronting that as the chief executive of the largest natural gas producer in the country, how do you address those issues and what do you think the right course is for you to take? It's an incredible motivator for me. You know, when we sold Rice Energy, we were fortunate to have enough success so that, you know, we weren't worrying about the dollars. That was not motivating us. We were 35, 36 years old and retirement wasn't an option. I was looking around what was going to be next in life for me. And because the money was handled, I wanted to focus on making an impact on this world. And there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. You can educate through podcasts. You can be get into politics or philanthropy. But when I saw this one chart, everything be, became crystal clear to me of what I wanted to do. And it was a correlation between energy consumption and human progress. Simply put, the more energy that people use, the better the quality of life. Simply put, the longer they live. So if you want to make an impact in this world, find a way to bring more energy into it. Think like a nice overlap to make an impact in this world. You know, we had that that opportunity to join EQT, and you know everything when we got in here was about bringing more energy into this world. But we realized that there was something that was stopping us from realizing our, realizing our full potential, and it was pipeline blockages. And you look and you see why are pipelines being canceled? It's preventing us from putting more energy into this world. And the reason why pipelines are getting canceled is simple: people are very scared about climate, and we took a different approach in dealing with this. And so for us to be able to bring more energy into this world, to make the world a better place and fuel modern societies and give the billions the opportunities of a quality lifestyle that they demand and quite frankly deserve, we've got to be a solution to climate. And that has sort of led us to take a step back, like Danny mentioned, being outsiders in this industry, we just have grown accustomed to looking things from a different lens. And we took a step back and said, well, how can we be a solution here? And we looked at what's worked really well in the past and who's done a good job lowering, lowering emissions. And it was been the United States, the world leader in lowering emissions, over a billion tons of, of emissions lowered by over 15 years. What did the United States do? We did the majority of those emission reductions came from one thing, using natural gas to replace coal. But okay, that's a proven solution. Is this a, is, could this be the fix that the world needs? What's the biggest source of emissions on this planet? No surprise, it's foreign coal. Do we have a better alternative? Yes, we do. And the technology that we now have with LNG is going to allow us to liberate our natural gas resources to retire coal on the world stage. And the impact that we can make by doing this, this is our Unleash US LNG scenario, where we 
mapped out the ability for the United States has the potential to increase LNG exports to over 60 BCF a day. That would be a quadrupling of current LNG exports. That would be the energy equivalent of adding 10 million barrels of clean energy to the world stage. This is a big deal. The environmental impact of doing so would have the environmental equivalent to electrifying every vehicle in the country, putting solar panels on every house in America, and also doubling U.S. wind capacity combined. So we've been on a campaign to educate people about, you know, there's a lot of things that people are focused on in the energy transition. Um, quite frankly, we want to focus the world on the fastest, most impactful, proven, and truly sustainable uh, solutions. And that is unleashing U.S. LNG on the world stage. Not only is it going to bring great environmental progress, but from an energy security perspective, as I mentioned, adding 10 million barrels a day of clean energy to the world stage is going to be a decarbonizing force and bring a tremendous amount of, of energy security and peace and prosperity to the world. So, Toby, what do, you, what do you say to people who have the science and they say, listen, at a certain methane leakage rate, both for the pipelines, for the LNG terminals for sure, and also for even you know, not the top producers, so people who are really capturing their methane when they produce, that natural gas is actually, especially LNG, is actually worse than coal. And and then just to add the geopolitical overlay, you know, you have the geopolitical problem too, where there are countries like India and Sri Lanka and Pakistan, where last summer, because of geopolitics, LNG was 100% unreliable. People had blackouts all through those countries because LNG was just too expensive to use. Yeah. So what I tell them is I tell them exactly what I told Secretary Granholm. I said, if you're concerned over methane emissions, good. Keep the focus there because we're, we're going to knock methane emissions out of the park. Methane emissions are not some rogue emissions that, that operators do not understand where the leaks are coming from. We know exactly where the methane emissions are coming from in our natural gas system. For natural gas producers like EQT, the biggest source of methane emissions is pneumatic devices, the piece of equipment that we put on our locations to help move fluid across locations. The good news is we have equipment that we can replace these pneumatic devices with zero methane emission technology. We've ripped out over 9,000 of these pneumatic devices at EQT. We did it quickly in less than 18 months. We did it cost effectively for less than $30 million and the impact has been tremendous. We've removed over 300,000 tons of emissions and reduced our methane emissions by over 70% with just this one initiative. And when you break that down on a dollar per ton, we remove these emissions for less than $6 a ton. It's fast, it's cost-effective, it's incredibly impactful, and we put a white paper on our website so that Others in industry that maybe don't have the benefit of having the dozens of environmental engineers and production engineers that we have at EQT so that others can replicate our success. We want to keep emissions on methane because this is why it's important. We cannot let the emissions associated with making our product overshadow the emission reduction benefits of people using our product. And for perspective, just to give you some numbers here, EQT, our carbon footprint is 300,000 tons. That is what it takes for us to run our rigs, complete our wells, and take care of them through well tending. 300,000 tons of emissions is our cost. This is the big environmental concern that people have over our industry. But that amount of operations will produce amount of product when put on the world stage to replace foreign coal will have an emissions benefit of over 150 million tons. 
So for a 300,000 ton cost, it's going to create a 150 million ton benefit. This is the greatest deal in climate. And so to focus people on the big issue is lowering emissions. We're taking our emissions footprint to zero. America's largest natural gas producer is going to be net zero by 2025, not 2050 or 2040, literally 24 months. And we're showing, we're, we're using this to show people that we can control this and we can make an impact so that we can focus on the bigger issues, which is lowering emissions holistically. So Danny, what do you think about those points then? I mean, that sounds like a pretty convincing case from Toby. Do you agree with everything he's just been saying? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that's certainly why getting into net power and taking natural gas to to essentially zero emissions scope one through three becomes possible. Because I think when you do look at the life cycle emissions from producing the natural gas, transporting the natural gas, combusting the natural gas in a net power plant, when you look at the full life cycle of that versus the full life cycle of wind and solar and other forms of renewables, even nuclear, from being able to construct the plant, mine the the precious metals, the carbon intensity of natural gas power generation in net power, taking responsibly sourced gas from a company like EQT has the same carbon intensity as wind and solar. Yeah. So, so if you step back and you think about this from a very practical perspective, we are producing an energy transition plan that starts with achieving the public's desire to lower emissions and allows the public to electrify everything. And that energy transition plan, there's two phases. Number one, transition the world from coal to gas that's using cleaner energy sources. And phase two is transition gas to a zero carbon energy solution. So Unleash USLNG is going to allow the United States to leverage our vast natural gas resources to decarbonize the world. And then when you use that gas with net power and carbon capture, we can take that natural gas and convert it into zero carbon electricity. These are the types of practical solutions that people are not talking about. These are the type of solutions that our industry it can execute. And believe me, we have the skill sets, we have the assets, we have the resources needed to make this happen. The question is, can we get allowed on the playing field to deploy these really game-changing solutions? So so what do you do, though, with the midstream? You know, you have the midstream problem and you also have the terminal problems. Yeah. Uh, are, there, are there technical solutions there? Absolutely. I mean, we need to bring transparency to the equation. And so there's a lot of things that we're doing in our businesses Number one, you look at the robust ESG reports that our industry has adopted. There's over 450 metrics that we put together that report on our operations. But what we say is not good enough. We need to bring in third-party environmental auditors to inspect this and verify that what we say is happening is actually happening. This is where gas certification takes place. And there's a lot of different certifications that can be made that actually brings that third-party verification that what we say is happening is actually happening. The next thing we need to do is not just report on what we know on with our locations, we're going to the skies and we're reporting not on every site, but on every acre uh, to address methane emissions. Uh, we've established an industry initiative called the Appalachian Methane Initiative, where we're taking planes and we're doing aerial flyovers to pick up any methane emissions across the entire basin. Now, Amy, just so you understand how big of a deal this is, Appalachia is a big place. We're going to be monitoring an area equivalent to the size of France. We take this very seriously. We are going to address people's concerns on this. And the last thing to your point on, 
it's good for the upstream, but you need to go full cycle on and put this verification through the pipelines, through the facilities that use it. And this is where we're using a company called Context Labs, and they're going to connect all of the data from where it comes out of the well, to where it gets consumed, and provide a holistic carbon intensity score for that molecule of gas. We think that this amount of transparency is going to give people a whole heck of a lot of confidence that natural gas is the solution for this climate and size. When you choose Wood Mackenzie, you choose a true partner, which brings innovation and clarity along with independent business intelligence. Our global solutions provide you the data, research and analytics that you need to succeed in the energy transition. We've provided energy intelligence for 50 years, and in the past decade, we've added a wide range of additional capabilities in power and renewables. The energy transition is the biggest change we've ever seen. Market evolutions and technology revolutions have disrupted business models and are creating a new energy landscape. In the 21st century, electricity will come to dominate the energy mix. Navigate these changing energy markets with Wood Mackenzie as policy, regulations and technology continue to evolve. Speak to us today about how our experts can help you thrive in this fast-moving industry as we work together to transform the way we power our planet. So now how do you come up with a verification company that people say, well, it's just not greenwashing? I mean, how are you going to convince people who really feel that it has to be renewables and electrification that the technologies you're talking about are going to work and that the verification system is going to work when the offsets market, you know, is done so poorly. Yeah. You know, Amy, I think the, the you have to look at the, the companies that are providing accreditations like OGMP 2.0, we're gold, gold star certified. I mean, there's government organizations that are relying on these to provide accurate assessments, but I'll be honest with you. There's always going to be environmental concerns about the way this industry operates always. And something that should give people peace of mind, the oil and gas industry is one of the most heavily scrutinized industries in the world. We have eyeballs on us there's satellites in the sky measuring what's happening on our operations. We are heavily scrutinized, but we will always address the environmental concerns. Hydraulic fracturing was a big concern. What did we do? Radical transparency, robust operational controls. And in time, the EPA came out in 2016 and said, hydraulic fracture is safe. Now the concern is, is pipelines. And Secretary Granholm has said, pipelines are the safest way to move product. Now the concern is methane emissions. As I mentioned, all those things, we're going to knock it out of the park. We will always uh, respond to the public's concerns, but at some point we need to address the need for our industry, the higher purpose that we can generate and move forward. But there's always going to be concerns about what we do because at the root of it, some people just want um, solar wind. What we want people to, to get aligned with is Let's focus on zero carbon energy solutions or lower clean carbon solutions. That's what we can provide. And so it's an argument that, that I think for us, it's not so much an argument. It's more of a discussion that needs to be grounded in data, grounded in the reality of things, right? And so I think any folks that are opponents of natural gas, I think a lot of it is not because it's grounded in science, but it's grounded in, in something else. And not that, that all folks that are in renewables have a dogmatic approach. Some of the absolute most brilliant, smartest people in the world are really trying to, to solve the world's problems with renewables. And, and I think there certainly is an all of the above approach. It's certainly a way that Toby and I look at it. But um, unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the world that, that don't share that, that, that same view. They think there's going to be one solution or two solutions that's able to satisfy the world's growing energy needs. 
And that's just not very just reflective of the way the world works and frankly, how large the world is. And there's parts of the world that can use certain things that can't use others, right? And and that's even here in the United States. Like as, as much as we would love to have solar and wind back in New England and be able to power 100% of the grid, it's just not scientifically possible for that to happen. So we need to find things like net power with natural gas to be able to plug that gap that cannot be filled with something else. So it really requires like a very objective, unbiased view, because I think the reality is, is we need all energy solutions. And people that are saying, we don't want this one or we don't want that one, it has to be because it's for the right reasons grounded in data and not for the wrong reasons grounded in emotions. So Danny, you mentioned science. I wanted to throw some other science into the conversation, which is climate science and the views of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which, like it or not, is kind of the best view we have of the global consensus of climate scientists on the influence of uh, human activity on the climate and what needs to happen to limit that. And when those scientists talk about the path that we're on, they don't talk about needing to reduce emissions. And absolutely, I hear everything you're saying about being able to reduce emissions and being able to prove that you're reducing emissions. But if we want to meet that goal of the Paris Agreement, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need not lower emissions, but net zero emissions soon by around the middle of the century. And what people will say is, well, yeah, if you have this increase in LNG, if you export more gas, build the infrastructure to do that, you have power plants burning the gas or using it in other ways at the destinations where the LNG is being sent, you're locking in an enormous amount of fossil fuel infrastructure that as I say, might have lower emissions, but will not have zero emissions, and zero is where we need to get to. And so then, so that's, I guess you'd say, where Danny's company, Net Power, comes in, and then you say, well, actually, we can have, we can use natural gas with zero emissions. That's a possibility, or near zero. But you're not there yet, right? I mean, there, there is no Net Power power plant currently in operation. You're developing your first projects. So you've still got a lot to do, haven't you, to prove that as part of that genuine solution for net zero emissions, not just lower emissions, that natural gas really can be part of that picture. Yeah. And so I think that, that that's certainly one of like the important conversations to have is we've set the 2050 goals that we want to hit, right? And I think there's universal consensus around what we're trying to get to in terms of emissions reductions to get to net zero. I think the dangerous thing that's happening today is we're starting to decide what are the energy sources that we're going to use to get there, ignoring technological advances on things like carbon capture, things like net power, right? We're writing those off and saying, not only do we need to get to these net zero emission reductions by 2050, but we're picking the winners and losers today before future technologies have been invented that could cause us to say, guess what? These other energy sources are the optimal ones to help us achieve that decarbonization at the lowest possible cost. And I think that was our biggest contention with natural gas is we said, for the last hundred years, all we've really been focused on as a society has been being able to procure the lowest cost, most reliable source of energy. And really over the course of the last 10 years, and really over the last five, has there been that third criteria, which is how clean is it? How can we make it more clean? 
right? And so I know everybody looks at natural gas as a carbon emitting source of power. They look at oil as carbon emitting, but it's never there's never been an incentive or a reason to try to develop technologies to decarbonize it. And that's what the industry is now doing. Principally the oil and gas industry, the the chemicals industry, we're trying to find new technologies to decarbonize these energy sources to not just play a small role in decarbonization, but to actually play a leading role. So Toby, what's your view of net zero? Are you fundamentally just saying we need to give up on that, abandon that as a goal, and we should just be happy with lower emissions rather than net zero emissions? Or are you pinning a lot of hopes on net power and similar technologies actually working to mean that you can have a long-term indefinite future for the natural gas industry that is consistent with net zero emissions or, or what? What do you think? Yeah. And my biggest concern in the whole energy transition conversation is that people are having these conversations without the oil and gas industry uh, in it in mind. And to be honest with you, this industry is the one that carries the weight of the world on its shoulders. We produce over 80% of the world's energy. We've made energy affordable. We've made it reliable. Now we hear the world calling for cleaner energy. We hear you. We have really big solutions that we can we can deploy, like unleashing our natural gas to replace foreign coal, biggest green initiative on the planet, taking natural gas and turning it into zero carbon or zero carbon electricity with net power. You know, we have the tools, the resources, the assets, and now the desire to go out and do and, and bring these bold solutions to the world. So, I mean, this is the industry that has done really miraculous things, brought energy independence to the United States. I mean, that was no small feat. A lot of people don't know what it took to make that happen. That was a miracle. We're going to take that same skill set. And the good news is that didn't happen 50 years ago. That happened 20 years ago. And that means that those same great minds that helped make that happen are still in this industry today. And we're working arm in arm to bring more affordable, more reliable and cleaner energy solutions to the market. The world definitely needs it. And just for perspective for your listeners, just to quantify the the size of foreign coal, it would take over 180 BCF a day of natural gas to replace foreign coal. Now for perspective, the United States uses about 100 BCF a day of natural gas and the global demand for natural gas is about 400 BCF a day. So this is a big thing. And then throw on the energy poverty, over 130 BCF a day is being used in the equivalent of biomass. I mean, let's not forget that there's billions of people where their primary source of energy is wood and manure, and it would require another 130 BCF a day. We have a lot of gas resource. We just need to put them on the field. So- in the field of carbon sequestration, because, you know, there is a lot of debate and we're coming up to the global climate talks and the whole question about the role of carbon sequestration, I'm sure, is going to be hotly debated uh, at the climate meetings later this month and into December. You know, what what would you say to someone who says, well, you know, why would we do carbon sequestration and develop all this natural gas when you can just stick the carbon sequestration onto coal? So, you know, why did you guys focus on you know, this carbon sequestration piece for this one sector of the industry. Uh, and are you concerned about breakthroughs in carbon sequestration for coal in places like China or other places that might uh, make, you know, your long-term investments for carbon sequestration and gas uh, less attractive? Or you think that it, wh- wh- what do you see the landscape there? Well, there's, so there's three things. I, I think first, in terms of like the scale of the resource, in terms of the storage capacity for CO2, there's a thousand times more 
storage capacity for CO2 than the entire world will, will need for the next hundred years. Okay. So like that we're talking about just geologically, like the United, like the earth, planet earth is just geologically blessed with places to permanently store CO2, just like we've stored natural gas for millennia. It's really just that entire process in reverse. So that's like the first starting place is this isn't a solution for maybe 1% of emissions. This is a, this is a solution for a hundred percent of the emissions if we so choose to do it. And then I think like the second piece is really like for us, we would be super hypocritical if we were saying, we don't want you to be dogmatic about the sources of energy that we should use, but then we're going to be dogmatic about everybody just using natural gas. No, like we're saying, Hey, if we can economically decarbonize coal power generation, we should be doing that. And guess what? We'd probably be one of the first people out there trying to do it today. I think one of the beautiful things about net power is technology, this oxycombustion, supercritical CO2 power generation, it really is sort of feedstock agnostic. It just needs to get into gas form. And so if you look at what we can do, yes, we're, high, we're 100% focused on natural gas. Why? Because natural gas is the lowest cost feedstock that we have in the world today. And the emissions is 50% lower than coal. So we're already starting at a much, much cleaner starting point from an emissions but net power with this technology that we're proving. Now in net power, we only own the IP to the gas cycle, right? To the gas oxycombustion cycle. But the parent company that started net power, they own the IP to the solid fuels cycle, which is coal gasification. So coal gasification with net power, guess what? You end up with clean zero emission coal. And that's, guess what? For a lot of parts of the world that don't have access to natural gas, that is a very fortunate place for them to get to. And so as we look at being able to really just decarbonize the planet, as much as we want to focus on solutions that work great for us here in the United States, the elephant in the room that everybody has to be mindful of is China and India. And guess what's powering China and India? It's not wind or solar. They are not leaning into decarbonizing by 2050 the way they need to be today. Why? Because they need to grow their lower class into the middle class into the upper class. And we're talking about six times more people, 10 times more people than we have here in the United States. And so if we don't create solutions here in the United States that could be exported to help them achieve both their energy and environmental goals, guess what? None of us are going to achieve our global emissions targets. What about Emmy's point about timing, though? It seems like time is the thing we don't have. We have, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of the carbon budget, the limited amount of emissions that we can put into the atmosphere before tripping various climate thresholds. And we're burning through that budget rapidly. We need to be deploying emissions reducing technology as quickly as we possibly can. At Net Power, I think you're saying your your first plant is going to be online by the end of 2027. Is that fast enough? And then question, if that is when the first plant gets rolled out, by what time could you have large scale deployment? Yeah, I mean, we, we're we planning right now for large-scale deployment by the early part of next decade. Like, we're talking about dozens of plants per year, which when you have each plant capturing over 800,000 tons of CO2 per year, I mean, you're talking about 30 to 40 million tons per year of new CO2 reductions, and it just compounds, right? It just continues to stack upon each other. Just to give people a sense of scale, if you replaced every coal and gas plant in the United States today, so just looking at U.S. power generation, if you replaced every coal and gas plant in the United States today with net power plants, it's about 800 net power plants in areas where you can sequester the CO2. And that'll reduce U.S. grid emissions 
by close to 80%. Uh, it is beyond incredible. And if the U.S. can do that, and this is just with one single technology, this is just with net power, but there's other forms of carbon capture with post-combustion carbon capture that can be good as well and complementary in areas that we really don't thrive. Like those are going to be like the meaningful ways to decarbonize. And I think that's that's part of the frustration people are having today is we're putting so much money into wind and solar, so much money, and we should be putting money into wind and solar up to a certain point, but there's marginal benefits beyond a certain point within grid decarbonization. And I think people are becoming frustrated because they're still seeing global CO2 emissions going up, right? And they're saying, what's what's happening here? This doesn't make sense. We're putting so much time, energy, and money into these things. We're really trying to move money away from fossil fuels, but emissions are still going up. I think the question everybody should be asking themselves are, is there a better way to do things? Are there new technologies we need to be developing? Are there things that we should be doing less of today and really re- reallocating our resources elsewhere? And unfortunately, I think people become stuck in this tunnel vision of there's only one path forward and it's wind and solar. And I think it really takes uh, special people that have a very objective, unbiased and holistic view to look at the entire landscape of options and say, these options work best here. These options work best here. We really need to develop new technologies because nothing works in these areas with what's available today. But I think, like, unfortunately, people have become so focused on 2050 as if it's going to be like this Y2K event. As countries and states start to set 2030 and 2035 goals, what they're really doing is they're boxing themselves into only being able to deploy existing technologies today and not letting new technologies like net power and fusion and all these other things that are coming down the pike from having the time to mature and scale to be the long-term, most meaningful ways to decarbonize. And so while 2050 is an important date, it's still a very arbitrary date. And it can actually be very, very counterproductive to achieving our long-term decarbonization goals if we start to set unnecessarily unrealistic deadlines because it really shortens the list of solutions we can begin deploying today. So I, I think, you know, maybe we have this dichotomy, right, between like you're saying, what we can do right away and what we need to invest in long term. I mean, I think the Inflation Reduction Act is trying to navigate that space. But the reality is that the science in just, you know, watching the news is showing us that the climate is moving faster than was expected in terms of the impacts of climate change in, in different parts of the world. And that goes everything we just had The new U.S. climate assessment was just released this week. So, you know, you have new reports coming out that show that the impact of climate change is 1.2, 1.3. Average uh, warming is already more severe than was expected. Uh, You have the new U.S. national climate assessment came out this week saying that there is likely to be a very widespread impact across the United States, some places worse than others. Um, And so, you know, how do we navigate this choice where we have to absolutely deploy what we have today to reduce as fast as we can today and keep the option open for new technologies to come down the road? Amy, I, I think we need to ask a question that's been different than what we've been asking in the past. I think with the Paris Accord, it really started. The question was, what can countries do to lower their emissions? And we find ourselves in this world where the United States has been the world leader in lowering emissions by over a billion tons. 
However, during that same period of time, global emissions have skyrocketed to over 7 billion tons, wiping out all the benefits that we've done here in the United States. We need to start asking a bigger question. What can your country do for the world? And that's where you have to start looking at the resources that we have in the United States, which is the natural gas resources we have to replace coal, and then also the massive pore space capacity we have to convert natural gas into zero carbon electricity. If you care about speed, getting rid of coal with natural gas is going to be the fastest, most impactful thing that we can do. And here's something that people may be surprised to hear. If we find ourselves in a world 10, 15 years from now, where solar and wind becomes a cheaper, more reliable, cleaner form of energy than gas, then we, they should replace the gas, but let it compete. Unfortunately, we really do have to leave it there, but this has been, the debate I'm sure is going to continue for a long time to come, but this has been great talking to you all, really interesting arguments, great to hear the points you've been making. Just before we go, in keeping with our Thanksgiving theme, I just wanted maybe to go around us all and hear what you're thankful for. Toby, heard a bit of yours, I think, at, at the beginning there. But did you, do you want to recap that? I mean, what is your thought when you think about what you want to be thankful for this Thanksgiving? What does your mind go to? Well, I mean, I, I would reiterate what, what I've said before. Um, I'm incredibly thankful for this industry to, to basically keep the lights on and provide the majority of the, the energy that this world needs so that we can enjoy modern society. And the last thing I'll say is like, Energy security is so important because we've seen what in Europe what happens when continents don't have energy security. Europe, Europe's lack of energy security this last year in 2022 meant that they typically spend $200 billion on energy. Last year, they spent a trillion dollars on energy. So over $800 billion more than they should have. They could have paid for two IRAs with those savings. So energy security matters. I'm thankful we have it here in the United States, thanks to American energy industry. Thank you very much. And you, Danny, what are you thankful for? I think, uh, you know, I'm I'm grateful for the folks in this energy transition space that have the guts to really think outside the box and really go against the norms and take a contrarian view to really figure out, are there better ways to do things? I think it's very easy to just go with the tide and do what just broader society will support and will applaud you for. But it takes real guts to say, I think there's a better way to do it. And I know I'm not going to be popular. And I know I'm going to be criticized for doing it. But guess what? I care about this planet just as much as you do. And I'm going to do what's even tougher because I know it's the right thing to do. And so I'm really, really thankful for those people because guess what? That That's what this country was built on, right? Was people that did things that were different, that were hard. And this energy transition, guess what? It's going to be really, really hard. And I think... I'm thankful for the folks that that share a similar view to us and say, this is an all of the above approach. I think to Amy's point, you know, I think as, as we look at like, this is serious business, right? But I think it's very short-sighted to say, well, we're going to down select to just two or three energy solutions to tackle the most challenging problem the world has ever tried to face. It's like trying to fight with one hand tied behind your back. It might be two hands tied behind your back. I think until we really know what the crystal clear winners are going to be. We need to have an all of the above approach. And so, you know, I'm thankful for all the people that are willing to step up and go against the grain because they believe it's the right thing for climate, it's the right thing for society, and it's the best thing for the United States of America. Well, I want to follow on that uh, and say that 
some of the listeners may not know that I began my career as a journalist, and especially in the dialogue from this show, what's most important to me and what I'm thankful for is that we still live in a country where freedom of speech is protected by law and hopefully honored by most Americans and hopefully all of our listeners. And so if you don't agree with uh, the Rice Brothers approach and you don't agree with some of the other things we've said on Energy Gang, you know, since last Thanksgiving, you know, I'm asking you to think thoughtfully about the importance of having debate and hearing other perspectives and different points of view uh, to be able to come up with the best policy framework uh, to meet this challenge of the energy transition. It takes a broad dialogue. And if, as Danny's saying, if we're just going to only focus in on a single kind of speaker or a single kind of uh, idea, we do close ourselves off uh, from the possibility that over time we might come up with uh, very scalable solutions that could be workable. So thank you, listeners, and thank you, everybody who supports our continuation of freedom of speech. Yeah, those are some some great thoughts, Amy, and that's very much what I wanted to say as well. I wanted to give thanks for our listeners. I think I was saying this the other day, and I'm going to repeat it at the risk of flattering everyone currently listening to this podcast. I'm really thankful for what a great group of listeners we have in the sense of people who are really thoughtful, well-informed, open-minded, willing to debate, as Amy says, willing to really kind of drill down into issues and to think about what the right things are to do to achieve the outcomes that we want in terms of making sure everyone in the world can get the energy that they want to deliver that quality of life while also avoiding catastrophic climate change. I'm thankful for everyone who likes the show, and it's always nice when people say, we think the show is great. I'm also very thankful for our critics. I think it was the great philosopher John Stuart Mill who had a line about, I always want the best quality of people arguing against me, the best quality of arguments to be raised against me, because then either two things happen. Either my mind gets changed and I get closer to the truth than I was before, or I know that my previous convictions were right because they've been tested as strongly as they can possibly be tested. And that's very much my approach, I think. So as I said, I'm afraid we do have to leave it there. Many thanks to both of you, Toby and Danny, for joining us today. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, Ed, Amy, this is this is a blast. Thank you so much. I, I love this. <laughs> Excellent. Likewise, it's been, it's been great talking to you both. Many thanks to you, Amy, for joining us. Thank you for having us, Ed. And happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Exactly. Uh, thanks to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And as I've been saying, many thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on the energy transition. And in fact, we'll be bringing you that from the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. So listen out for that. We'll have some special episodes there reporting on all the latest developments in the climate debate. A lot of very big issues up for debate there at COP28. So we should have some really interesting shows for you then. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.